I'm proud to stand here on the ancestral homelands of the Lenape Tribal Nation. The President-elect and Vice President-elect are committed to a diverse cabinet, and I'm honored and humbled to accept their nomination for Secretary of the Interior. Growing up in my mother's Pueblo household made me fierce. My life has not been easy. I struggled with homelessness. I relied on food stamps and raised my child as a single mom. These struggles give me perspectives, though, so that I can help people to succeed. My grandparents, who were taken away from their families as children and sent to boarding school in an effort to destroy their traditions and identities, maintained our culture. This moment is profound when we consider the fact that a former Secretary of the Interior once proclaimed his goal to, quote, civilize or exterminate us. I'm a living testament to the failure of that horrific ideology. That was then-Congresswoman Deb Holland in December 2020, after President-elect Joe Biden nominated her to be Secretary of the Interior. Three months later, she was confirmed. For Secretary Holland to now helm a department whose very definition for Indigenous peoples has been to abuse us and to eliminate us, um, it's, it almost is surreal to be quite honest. But that's not all. Well, she has a substantial authority over most public lands. So she has a very, very wide and kind of eclectic portfolio. I think uh, one of the big challenges of the job, uh, since I've observed the last, I don't know, dozen or so secretaries of the interior operate, one of the big challenges of the job is deciding what your priorities are going to be and you know, which areas are you going to concentrate on and how do you want to leave your mark. So how does a tribal citizen of Laguna Pueblo, at one point a single mother experiencing homelessness, come to be in charge of everything from Yellowstone to oil and gas leasing on public land to the Bureau of Indian Affairs? Who is Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we talk about power through the stories of people who have it. Holland was born in Winslow, Arizona, on December 2nd, 1960. But Holland doesn't call herself Arizonan, or whatever cute name people from Arizona use to refer to themselves. Holland calls herself a 35th generation New Mexican. And her roots go way back before there was a New Mexico, or a Mexico, or the word new, which emerged in the 14th century. Over 500 years ago, thousands of Indian tribes were vibrant, democratic societies with rich cultures and traditions in communities that had sustained them for millennia on lands they loved and respected. My people, the Pueblo Indians, migrated to the Rio Grande Valley in the late 1200s to escape droughts. We were led to the Great River and its tributaries, where we established an agricultural tradition that continues to this day. To learn more, I spoke to somebody who knows the Pueblos firsthand. My name is Jenny Monet. I'm a tribal citizen of Laguna Pueblo, Big Turkey Clan. And I'm a journalist who's been writing about Deb Holland lately. Where is Laguna Pueblo? 
The Laguna Pueblo is one of 19 pueblos in the state of New Mexico, and uh, I am a tribal citizen. It's situated about 50 miles on the west side of Albuquerque, and it is also the pueblo that Deb Holland is a tribal member of. I spent summers in Mesita, our small village on Laguna Pueblo, the location of my grandparents' traditional home. It was there that I learned about my culture from my grandmother by watching her cook and by participating in traditional feast days and ceremonies. It was in the cornfields with my grandfather where I learned the importance of water and protecting our resources where I gained a deep respect for the earth. Holland's parents are J.D. Dutch Holland and Mary Toya. Her father is a Norwegian Minnesotan. His parents, Secretary Holland's paternal grandparents, immigrated to America in the 1880s. As they were arriving in America, Secretary Holland's maternal great-grandfather was being taken from his Laguna Pueblo family and sent away to Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania. The founder of Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which is a sinister enough name in and of itself, is notable for the following quote. All the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. End quote. These family separations were common at the time, and many of them were carried out by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which sits within the agency that Deb Holland is now in charge of. Holland's grandmother was also taken from her family at the age of eight and sent to boarding school in Santa Fe. Her daughter, Mary Toya, is Deb Holland's mother. Here's Secretary Holland in a TED Talk in 2016. My mother, she was your average Renaissance woman. She played the snare drum in a marching band. She joined the Navy out of high school. She played baseball. In fact, she could tell you the stats on every single San Francisco Giants player. She could also hunt, skin, butcher, and cook a deer. I don't even know how to do that. But seriously, you may be wondering how the Hollands got together and why Deb's mother is a Giants fan. Well, it's because of the military. Mary and Dutch, remember, that's Deb's father, met when they were both stationed on Treasure Island in San Francisco. And the eventual family of six would move around a lot. Holland has said she went to 13 different schools by the time she graduated from Highland High School in Albuquerque. Most people graduate from high school when they're 18 or 19 and you start first grade when you're about six. That means Holland may have gone to a different school just about every year of her childhood. In 2014, she told Albuquerque Business First about her first job. Quote, I was 14 years old and worked for Zinn's Bakery near San Mateo and Catherine. It was the best bakery in town, a small, independently-owned business. I worked there for 13 years and started at $1.95 an hour. I was a sales girl and eventually went into management, and I decorated cakes. I learned a lot from Mr. and Mrs. Zinn. They were wonderful role models, had a great work ethic and efficiency, end quote. If you did the math, Deb Holland started working at Zins in 1974, when she was 14, and didn't leave the job until she was 27 in 1987. During this time, Holland got two DWIs. She told the Albuquerque Journal in 2018, quote, Over 35 years ago, I had two DWI convictions. I have not consumed alcohol since. It was a hard lesson, but one I took to heart, 
and was part of my life's journey that has led me to where I am today, end quote. At 28, Holland enrolls at the University of New Mexico, majoring in English. Here's Jenny Monet. Deb Holland, in her undergraduate studies, went to school to be a serious writer. In fact, she studied under um, who today is our U.S. Poet Laureate, Joy Harjo, to be a poet. And it's interesting because in really doing some deep diving into who Deb Holland was before she became Secretary of the Interior, I have been studying a lot of her early magazine articles that she would write for New Mexico Magazine um, and in other areas where she was really trying to frame herself as, I think, a serious essayist, but also a poet. And it's very interesting to read the evolution of her bylines because at once she'll say that she's, you know, just a writer. Other times she'll write that she's a writer and a poet. Other times she'll write how she's making salsa, which we now know she uh, was at one time a, an entrepreneur, and then writing at night. And I love the details that those simple bylines have been for me as a doorway to understanding who she is now as this, you know, iconic figure for all of us who has spoken so eloquently and likely um, from statements and remarks that came from a pen that is pretty powerful from those writing days. Holland's college experience was different, and that's important. It wasn't until she was 28 that she actually attended undergraduate study. And in previous interviews, it was pretty honest of her to share with me that she really hadn't been exposed to the idea that she could have a quote-unquote career, that those notions of actually building something to shape her life moving forward were the goals and objectives that she should be having. And so I think that once all of those uh, prospects started to become realized around her, you know, as she entered into her 30s, I think that she's wasted no time to play catch up in many ways. And through her own admissions and sharing of her struggle, she has let us know that that has included overcoming alcohol addiction, really making sobriety a big part of her path, and how her choice to become a single mother at the age of 33, four days after she graduates from college, she gave birth to her single child, Soma, um, that that also has shaped her real grasp on the struggle and inequality that face a lot of Americans from marginalized community. I think that she learned a lot from being in those trenches of trying to make ends meet. She was working tirelessly to become an entrepreneur and making salsa and trying to make that work for her and her daughter, which eventually led to unsheltered society uh, at times. And so she really struggled. She admittedly has survived off of food stamps and knows what it's like to try to make those stretch. And so I think, you know, to have someone campaigning like Deb and to have her story front and central, it just became just so relatable to so many people across Indian country. So just to recap, great-grandfather kidnapped from his family to be sent to a school founded and run by a man who didn't acknowledge indigenous humanity. Grandmother also sent away, military parents, and hard times as a young woman. 
Eventually, Holland goes back to the University of New Mexico to study law. She does get her JD, and she doesn't pass the bar, actually. And she, to my knowledge, she makes two attempts to pass the bar, doesn't. Uh, She does end up taking jobs that allow her to practice in the tribal courts and to take other administrative positions for some of the other Pueblos. In 2004, she volunteers for John Kerry's presidential campaign. And in 2007, she joins the group Emerge, an organization that finds young Democratic women and helps them train for a future in electoral politics. The organization was founded by Andrea Du Steele. They have branches in a bunch of states, including, yep, New Mexico. And according to the comments on Breitbart, it's Clinton-funded, Soros-staffed, and leftist-advised. But anyway, in 2008, Deb Holland volunteers full-time for Senator Barack Obama's presidential run. I'm Barack Obama. America's a country of strong families and strong values. My life's been blessed by both. I was raised by a single mom and my grandparents. We didn't have much money, but they taught me values straight from the Kansas heartland where they grew up. Accountability and self-reliance. Love of country. Working hard without making excuses. Treating your neighbor as you'd like to be treated. Here she is in 2019. You know, I got into politics because I really wanted more Native Americans to get out and vote. One of my first moves toward that end, I started going into campaign offices of candidates I liked and asking for lists of Native Americans so I could make phone calls. That turned into me actually showing up. Uh, in those communities, knocking on doors, registering voters. I'd go to uh, the Navajo Nation fairs, to Pueblo feast days, and set up a booth and register voters and then drive them to the polls when it was time. Uh, That turned into me uh, working on the Obama campaign in 2012 and one of my few paid staff positions. I was usually volunteering. And then I became the state chair of our party in 2015 and we won across New Mexico. We had lost our state house in 2014. We won it back in 2016 under my leadership. And when I finished my term there, I just thought maybe I could, I could run for Congress. And it's not just politics. She joins the board of the Laguna Development Corporation, a tribal-owned conglomerate of casinos, RV resorts, tourist trap restaurants, and hotels. The job is the first of many firsts for Holland. She's the first woman on the board of the Laguna Development Corporation and goes on to become its chair. This is big business and no small salsa company. In 2018, a spokesperson told the Albuquerque Journal that the 8,000-member Pueblo had profits of $100 million from its business operations in 10 years. In 2014, she's the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor. I'm Deborah Holland. I'm the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor. I'm an enrolled member of the Pueblo of Laguna, and I work for the Pueblo of San Felipe as a tribal administrator. My dad was a 30-year career Marine and combat veteran in Vietnam, and my mother was a Navy veteran and dedicated over 25 years of her life to Indian education. My grandfather was a 45-year diesel train mechanic, and my grandmother, for a time, cleaned diesel train engines with a bucket of kerosene and a brush. She loses. But you may start to feel like you've heard these stories before. And that's because Deb Holland is a politician. 
A politician whose story means something, but a politician nonetheless. In 2015, Holland becomes chair of the New Mexico Democratic Party, which is a serious political job, a job that is about fundraising and winning races. Reflecting on her time in charge of the Democratic Party of New Mexico, Holland told Rolling Stone, quote, You know, when you're successful, you keep wanting to do it. I ran for state party chairwoman in 2015. We had lost our state house in 2014 after 60 years, and the party had accumulated seven years worth of debt. I said I would pay off the debt and win back our state house, and we did both. We, as a team, went to every small community, every county. We had the idea that there are Democrats everywhere, even in red counties. And let's find every Democrat and make sure they know we care about them and want them to get out and vote. And we were successful. We got Democrats elected up and down the ballot. Deb Holland runs for Congress in 2018. Deb Holland is fierce. She's one tough lady. And she is Donald Trump's worst nightmare. Her story is our story. I'm a single mom. She's a single mom. So Deb understands the struggles and the joys. She'll fight for clean energy jobs, good paying jobs that our families really need. She knows what it's like to be a small business owner. I know she's going to support us. I'm Deb Holland, and Congress has never heard a voice like mine. I approve this message because there's a brighter future waiting for New Mexico. She wins. She and Representative Sharice Davids are sworn in as the first Native women in Congress ever. I asked Jenny Monet about meeting Congresswoman Holland. You first spoke with Congress, then Congresswoman Holland in November of 2018. What were you talking with her about and what was your first impression? Yeah, so I called her, I would say it was maybe a week or so after she had won her campaign in New Mexico. I believe it was around 59% of the vote. And she was so ready and open to speak with me. Um, We had never met before. I had told her that I was also Laguna and how I had, you know, impossible pride for her victory as a Pueblo woman and just to understand what her story was at that time. Um, I had reached out to her. I was doing a story about what is now this kind of well-known movement known as the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Movement. And it's gone on to evolve to include all of our relatives in Indian country. And Colin had been campaigning on that issue in her role for Congress, in her run-up for Congress. And at the time, that movement was really galvanizing across America, although it had been growing for many decades. It had really started catching on and in large part to a horrific death that had taken place in North Dakota, the murder of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. And I knew at the time that in watching Holland's campaigning that she had also been on the ground at a candlelight vigil held in New Mexico for this Spirit Lake mother who was murdered. And it was heartbreaking for people across Indian country to take in that murder because it involved the murder of this mother who, whose child survived. She was eight months pregnant. It really catapulted this movement, the missing and murdered movement, to a level of which 
it became one of Deb Holland's first bills that she introduced as a newly elected congresswoman. And of the four pieces of legislation that she led in sponsorship in her time as a congresswoman, the Not Invisible Act is one of those pieces of legislation that she was successful in passing. I just think it's pretty profound that it was very much a part of who she is um, in terms of representing Indigenous women and Indigenous mothers, obviously. She has a daughter. And so it just spoke a lot, I think, to many people across Indian country. Here's Deb Holland herself in a congressional hearing in 2019. The silent crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women has been my top priority since long before being sworn into Congress. And I am appreciative that I'm here today to hear your testimony to help find solutions to this long overdue issue in Indian country. I'm wearing red today in honor of missing and murdered indigenous women. And, um, and so I wanted to mention that. Indigenous women deserve to be protected just like anyone else in this country. This is why I've been working diligently with my colleagues on bills to provide basic protections for women and programmatic support for tribal public safety, including the SURVIVE Act, which increases resources for tribal victims' assistance through the Crime Victims Fund, the Native Youth and Tribal Officer Protection Act to extend protections to children and law enforcement personnel involved in domestic violence incidents on tribal lands, and Savannah's Act to protect Native American women by increasing communication and accountability amongst state, tribal, and federal lines and address the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women. This important issue is one of the first things now Secretary of the Interior Holland has moved on. In April of 2021, Holland announced that a new unit within Bureau of Indian Affairs will look at this crisis of missing and murdered Native Americans. It seems like Deb Holland walks the walk. But remember... She's also a politician, and politicians are politicians. As a journalist, I often say that she challenges my journalistic integrity because we're raised as journalists in this business to, you know, scrutinize people in power, challenge politicians and their decision making. But that's a complicated scenario in this regard because the players have changed. Deb Holland is a game changer. We'll be back to look at just how much this game changer could change the game after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we've looked at the story of the woman in charge of, well, what does the Department of the Interior do anyway? Let's uh, go to their website. What I really love to do is stay up late at night watching government promotional videos. Interior. It's more than just the Department of Everything Else. A strong start. People. History, energy, land, water, science, responsible stewardship. That's what Interior is all about. I thought he said it wasn't the Department of Everything Else. So Secretary Holland is in charge of all of this stuff. 30% of the real estate in the country is owned and managed by the national government. And you tell people that and their first question is, wow, I didn't have any idea. How did that happen? That's John Leshy. My name is John Leshy, and I am a emeritus professor at University of California, Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco, 
My background is mostly to do with public lands, and that's been my focus of much of my professional career. I did two tours of duty inside the Interior Department in, way back in the Carter administration and then in the Clinton administration, and I've stayed involved in public lands issues since. And I just have a book coming out, A Complete History of the Public Lands, America's Public Lands, uh, that Yale Press is going to publish around the end of the year. So I am uh, well steeped in that stuff, and it's been a lifelong passion of mine. So what goes on on the interior of the Department of Interior? The Department of the Interior is the primary, not the exclusive, but the primary manager of these public lands. And it, it is housed within it are several different agencies that deal with public lands. The primary ones being the one everybody's heard of, which is the National Park Service, which manages the lands in the National Park System. Then there's the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, and it manages our national wildlife refuges, which is 100 million acres of land or so. Then there's the Bureau of Land Management, which is the most obscure, and most people haven't heard of it at all. And it manages the most land, actually, of all the agencies. And then there are several other agencies that manage minerals and water projects and also deal with Indian affairs. So the Interior Department is a eclectic combination of a lot of different agencies, but the most important overall focus is public lands. It is truly incredible how much public land America has. One of the coolest experiences of my life was walking through Yellowstone Park early in the morning and seeing the geysers. A buffalo walked near my car. But uh, where'd we get all this dope land? Public lands reflect American history. I mean, they are political lands. They are lands that the political system has dealt with from the very beginning. And so they reflect all the good and bad sides of American history, all the, you know, warts and all. And so the experience of Indian affairs and the relationship between the U.S. government and the Indian nations is very much a part of that. And of course, much of that conflict was over land. Now, one interesting thing that's not well understood, I think, is that the Indians were, you know, there's a tragic history there, obviously. The Indians, uh, the Indian nations controlled much of the real estate in the country. Uh, when Columbus came, uh, they were everywhere, basically, and they had their own organizations and governments and that sort of thing. They were gradually, as we all know, dispossessed, uh, persecuted, to some extent exterminated, uh, pushed aside, and they lost most of their land. That process happened uh, partly through military action, mostly through the action of basically exploiters and entrepreneurs and settlers who just pushed them out of the way as they moved west. And they were dispossessed, and then the government, the national government, dealt with those Indian nations, initially directly through treaties, to reach an understanding and a legal resolution of the dispossession process. Typically, the Indians were awarded or reserved some lands for their own use, and they gave up title to the rest of the lands that they had traditionally occupied. And usually there was some compensation involved. I don't think anybody argues that compensation was adequate. And obviously these treaties were not negotiated with equal bargaining power because the United States had military superiority. But that process went on, and here's an important point I think that's often misunderstood. As that process went on, and the process by which Indians were dispossessed of their ancestral lands in most cases, that process all happened well in advance, 
usually years, decades, ahead of the decisions the United States made to hold on to some of the public lands permanently. So there's kind of an image out there that we, you know, created the national forests and created the national parks and created these protected areas by snatching them away from the Indians. That's not really the way it happened. <laughs> the lands were snatched away from the Indians and opened up for settlement uh, by non-Indians. And then only later did the United States say, hey, we actually ought to keep some of these lands. And it's an important point because there's kind of a sense out there, I think, that many people have that somehow, you know, the Park Service and the Forest Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service were sort of the bad guys snatching the lands away from the Indians. <laughs> That's not actually how it happened. How it happened was the United States snatched the lands away from the Indians and then only later said, hey, we ought to save some of this in parks and refuges and forests and the like. Or in 2021 terms, European colonizers snatched the land from the people living there, gave it to private interests, made some of it public, and then gave that back to private interests, right? Oh, wait, we haven't gotten to that last part yet. The Interior Department manages basically all the minerals on public lands that are found on public lands, and that includes fossil fuels, oil and gas, coal, also hard rock minerals, copper, gold, etc., etc. Um, and those are all managed by the Interior Department. Now, many public lands are closed to mineral development, closed by the executive branch or closed by Congress. So you cannot, for example, develop petroleum in wilderness areas. You cannot develop petroleum in national parks or any other minerals for that matter. So to some extent, we have zoned the public lands uh, to rule out mineral development on a lot of them. But there are some f public lands, and if I had to guess 150 million acres or so, a big chunk that are open to mineral development. And these are managed through the Interior Department. The cynic in you is right if you assumed managed means how the American government generally manages things. The general rule is that the Interior Department can say yes or no. It has the discretion, the authority from Congress to decide whether to allow mineral development on these lands that are open. Or it can say no for various reasons because they want to protect wildlife or water quality or whatever. And so this is why... <laughs> This is one of the things that makes the Interior Department's decision-making controversial because they have to choose, you know, do we want to allow mineral development here or not in this particular area? And so that's an ongoing process. Now, if you look at recent history, you'll see some pretty stark examples of that because the Trump administration basically made a decision from the very beginning that we're going to open everything we can, every, every acre that we have discretion over to allow for fossil fuel development, we're going to open up to fossil fuel development through the leasing. They do it by leasing. You, the government retains the ownership, but then leases the right to exploit the minerals and remove the minerals. And so the Trump administration basically tried to open everything it could. The Biden administration so far looks like they are rethinking all those decisions and probably are going to restore a, more of a balance, which has traditionally been the approach. Isn't it kind of absurd that this public land, Purple Mountain Majesties and whatnot, is open for exploitation by private business? What do we, the people, get out of this arrangement? We, the, collectively, the government has made the decision that these lands may be appropriately exploited for oil and gas in return because they produce 
something that's valuable to society. Uh, the United States gets a return on those in the sense that the, the, the companies pay a royalty and, and a rental for those lands and a royalty on the minerals produced. So that goes into the federal treasury. And half of that money that comes into the federal treasury is distributed to the states where that oil and gas is produced. So we're sitting in New Mexico. I'm sitting in New Mexico right now. The New Mexican government uh, derives a few hundred million dollars a year from royalties produced from oil and gas on federal land. So there is a financial return, and that's part of the justification for allowing it. Most of the oil and gas in the United States that is produced is produced from, three-quarters of it, is produced from private land. So the federal lands only account for about a quarter of the overall production. And by the way, that includes offshore lands as well as onshore lands, because a fair amount of oil and gas is produced from offshore lands, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico and to some extent in Alaska. So it's mineral production, fossil fuel production, has always been seen as an inappropriate use of some public lands, and that goes on today. Now, to some extent, the markets are speaking here. I think most rational observers who look at the future of fossil fuels on federal land, they don't have much of a future, in part because the whole society and the whole globe is going to move away, have to move away from fossil fuel production. And so we're already seeing in the coal markets, I think about half of the total U.S. coal production comes from federal lands. Almost all of that comes from a couple of counties in Wyoming where there are very rich federal coal deposits. But mines up there are closing right and left. Uh, and there's not much of a future there because we are moving as a society away from coal production. And that's going to impact federal coal production as well as coal production on private lands. To some extent, the same thing's really, the same thing will happen a little slower with respect to oil and gas production for the same reason. The global markets, because of climate change and concern about carbon emissions, are moving strongly away from oil and gas production as they will have to, and that will impact public lands as well as non-public lands. In 2021, it isn't just about land anymore. There's also the climate crisis and the role that the Secretary of Interior could have in combating that crisis. But this wasn't in that Interior Department home movie I played you earlier. What ability does Interior have to mitigate climate change? Well, quite a bit. I mean, for one thing, because the Interior Department does oversee 25% of the carbon emissions from fossil fuels that the United States produces, we have an awful lot to say, a significant thing to say about that. It's also worth mentioning that public lands context, the United States government, through the Interior Department, has been a world leader for a century or more. You know, we created the world's first national park. We created the first world system of protected wilderness areas. And many other nations have followed suit. And so our leadership in this area has been really important to the global fight to preserve biodiversity and to mitigate and protect against climate change. So I, our leadership has been lacking in the last few years, I think it's fair to say, on those issues. But we really need to restore that leadership position. And the Interior Department's policies can have impact, as they have historically, uh, around the world. And so I think the Interior Department is an important part of the national effort and really the global effort to fight climate change. Secretary Holland could have a global impact. But what about the local impact? 
When we're back, we're going to hear from one member of the next generation of indigenous activists on the Pueblo. After this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we're talking about Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland. Okay, yeah. So, hello, my name is Julia Bernal. I am from Sandia Pueblo, and I am the current Alliance Director for a Pueblo grassroots organization in Tiwa Territory called Pueblo Action Alliance. Why'd Bernal get involved in the first place? Well, for me, I think I've always had a spirit of resistance, (laughs) if you will. As a younger person, I would always find myself writing about resistance and historic periods of resistance and in high school, if we were ever, ever given the chance to write something a little bit different. I was writing about the apartheid in South Africa and the resistance that happened there, um, writing about the American Indian movement and the resistance, the indigenous resistance here. I'd say that my organizing and radicalization really happened during the Standing Rock movement. I was already in the water resources sector. I was already trying to make a clear path for me to get into that work. And then Standing Rock happened where water protectors were being brutalized by militarized police to just protect their water. And that really resonated with me because I had always knew that I wanted to get into water work because I knew I wanted to protect our river mother. And since then, going to Standing Rock, meeting other Pueblo people that were like-minded as me at camp, and then coming back home to here and understanding better the environmental justice issues that are happening and impacting our communities pushed me to reconsider my perspective on conservation, my perspective on land stewardship, and all of these other conservation efforts that were either federal programs or white environmental organizations. I felt like, whoa, (laughs) they really aren't including indigenous perspective, traditional ecological knowledge, and we're also still fighting against industries that want to grab all of our land and uh, exploit resources from them in order to secure those streams of revenue. So ever since then, we've been working really hard to use Pueblo Action Alliance as a platform to provide accessible information to our communities. And thinking back to the subject of our episode, how does Julia Bernal understand the relationship between activism and electoral politics? I think it's very dependent on what the demands are. Because I don't want to undermine like people showing up on the streets. Like That's important, especially when it comes to confronting um, police brutality and a lot of the systemic issues around prison pipelines and 
militarization of police and the racism that comes with excessive police force, that definitely needs to be abolished. And the resistance that is coming out of that is on the streets. Um, In Indian country, it's a little bit different because we're organizing on rural landscapes a lot of the time. Not in the metro cities, but out where the fracking wells are, out where oil pipelines are being constructed. You know, our organizing is going to look a lot different. So I just wanted to make that sort of clear as well. But when it comes to engaging in legislation and the electoral politics and... I feel like we view that as very reactionary type of organizing because, for example, the Bureau of Land Management has been a federal entity under DOI and has had a long legacy of colonial harm. And with that, there's a long legacy of indigenous resistance. And so when Indian country was organizing to have our our Auntie Deb Holland as Madam Secretary, as, you know, that secretary cabinet seat, we wanted to make sure that there was a clear distinction that she is assuming a department, a system that has had a very long legacy of colonial harm to indigenous communities, including including her own community in Laguna, the Jackpile Mine, which is, you know, a uranium open pit mine that has caused a lot of hurt. So even though, you know, we're making like these moves to have better representation in departments like this, we can't forget all of the other secretaries of DOI superseding this moment now and all of the actions that they have done in order for it to be at this point right now. And I think that even Deb Holland understands herself that the Department of the Interior Cabinet Secretary is laying out the Biden administration's agenda, not entirely her own. And so those are the types of limitations that we see happening with a lot of our indigenous elected representatives and we just have to remember it's because of how the system is designed we have so many treaties that have been broken and the u.s government has been so fixated on written policy and things put in stone yet when it comes to the treaties that are supposed to be respected with the original peoples here, they are broken. They aren't as important, you know? So there's a lot of contradictions in the system as well. And it takes indigenous movements in order to unveil where a lot of like these documents shortcomings are and have to hold the system yet again (laughs) accountable for their lack of trust responsibility to us. So 
it's hard because you want to find ways to empower our people. Like there's a lot of advocacy around go get out the vote. And you know what? Indian country did show up for the vote. But that doesn't mean that the system is automatically going to change. It's by its design continuing to disenfranchise communities. So I think it's really important to understand that. To be involved, yes, absolutely, but also really think about what's what are long-term goals. Let's put as much effort and resources into long-term solutions because I think a lot of the reactionary type of organizing is getting in the way of thinking beyond like this moment. There's a lot of hope around Secretary Holland, but also some reality. Here's Jenny Monet. Activism is a foundation to Indian country politics simply because our political representation has been so suppressed for so long that it's also been a proxy to how we are seen and heard in the face of longstanding invisibility. And I think that that's what's so profound about a Secretary Holland in her position right now is that it has completely reversed that invisibility in ways that has made us all kind of imagine the possibilities which has long lived in the activism. I want to play you a piece of tape you heard at the beginning of the episode. Here's John Leshy. Well, she has a substantial authority over most public lands. So she has a very, very wide and kind of eclectic portfolio. I think uh, one of the big challenges of the job, uh, since I've observed the last, I don't know, dozen or so secretaries of the interior operate, one of the big challenges of the job is deciding what your priorities are going to be and you know, which areas are you going to concentrate on and how do you want to leave your mark. A Laguna Pueblo woman is Secretary of the Interior. And that means something. Secretary Deb Holland is a new kind of politician. A politician who's both representative of, and accountable to, communities who have often found themselves on the outside. But Deb Holland is on the inside. Interior is a truly massive department, which has an impact on everything from the climate crisis to tribal nations to our national parks. A Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, doesn't suddenly right a century of wrongs. And she can't fix the climate crisis. Not alone, at least. But she is someone different. And she's someone who means a lot to many people. Deb Holland is a Laguna Puebla woman who will have an impact. And pretty soon, we're going to see more of what that impact will be. Next week on Who Is... Big pharma, big meat, big tobacco, big dairy. Pretty much every industry has a big. The corporate cabal that completely controls the business and influences how the government regulates it. So, as cannabis is legalized in more and more states, are we going to see a big weed take over the business and ruin our highs? Find out next week on Who Is Big Weed, which is out on 420. A sincere thank you to our guests, Julia Bernal. Alliance Director at the Pueblo Action Alliance. Bernal is an enrolled tribal member at Sandia Pueblo, but is also from Taos Pueblo and the Uchi Creek Nations of Oklahoma. She's currently working towards an MA in Water Resources Policy Management and an MA in Community Regional Planning at the University of New Mexico. John Leshy, 
who has dedicated his life to America's public lands and the laws which govern them. His latest book will be published by Yale University Press in late 2021. And Jenny Monet, a journalist who writes about Indigenous affairs. Her weekly newsletter, Indigenously, may be found at indigenously.org. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Steve Cooper. Production support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Jade Begay at NDN Collective. Special thanks to the Native American Rights Fund. Want to escape? On Thrillist Explorers, you'll travel around the world from the comfort of your own headphones. Join longtime Thrillist writer and host Will Fulton as he digs deep into wanderlust-inducing travel stories and interviews people who are running out of pages in their passports. From professional skater Tony Hawk detailing his RV trip across the states to legendary journalist Dan Rather giving his picks for the best food in Austin, Texas. Thrillist breaks down stories you'll want to tell your friends about, delivers actionable travel advice, and creates an inclusive experience that will inspire you to go around the globe, or at the very least, dream about it. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe. If there's someone you want to hear us do an episode about, feel free to reach out to me on social media at SNMRRW or shoot me an email, sm at 